I'll tell you what, that night when I went to bed in Germany, I said, what in the world you have you done? You were saying some prayers. You just signed <laughs> to be responsible for a $5 million project and you don't have a clue about what you're doing. In a foreign country. In a foreign country. But it all worked out. Welcome to East Idaho Entrepreneur's Podcast. Inspiring stories from local people and businesses you likely already know and trust. Here is your host, third generation family business entrepreneur, Renee Oswald. Welcome back to another episode of East Idaho Entrepreneurs Podcast. On this show, I interview business owners, entrepreneurs, and influencers, and help them share their origin stories. Hearing their journeys are inspiring, and it helps us to get to know our neighbors better. Today, I am so happy to introduce my guest. He has traveled the world building dome structures, and he set industry standards in his business. Welcome, Mike Hunter of Dome Tech International. Yeah, that, there should be some applause. <laughs> no. I'll, I will. We'll put that in there. No, that's fine. I'm just <laughs> well, we're happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. So, Mike, for the listeners who may not be familiar with your work, could you please explain a little bit about what Dome Tech International is? Dome Tech International is a company that builds concrete domes. And uh, we started out building them primarily. Well, we started out building them for potato storage here in Southeast Idaho. But then we branched into other industries. Um, and now we build them all over the world for primarily for storing large quantities of bulk dry materials, such as cement powder, cement clinker, fertilizer, grain. Uh, we're building a limestone storage right now. Uh, anything that people store in large quantities and when I say large quantities, I'm talking about shipload quantities. That's usually a good application for one of our domes. <clears throat> That's one of our markets. Another one of our markets is building hurricane and tornado shelters for schools and municipalities in the hurricane and tornado belts of the United States. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what we do. So when you say that, uh I picture like this big, huge chunk of concrete, but it's not necessarily all concrete, right? Like, um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, because clearly I don't know your business, but you do like a foundation and then sometimes you do like this floaty air thing that makes a dome of which you then make it hard. And <laughs> you know, yeah. the technical <clears throat> part of that. What, what, uh, some people they compare us to, we're a, a, a low-cost alternative to a traditional vertical concrete silo. When you tell people silo, they realize, oh, that's a, a tall cylinder that's made out of concrete. Right. But it's hollow, and so you fill it up with stuff. Right. And that's what our domes are. They're just a spherical-shaped silo. Yeah. So, yes, as you said, we start out building a foundation, a round foundation. And depending on what the soils are like, it could just be a very simple foundation or it might be a really deep, uh, more complex foundation. Then on top of that, we, well, to, to, the, to that round foundation, we attach a fabric form. We call it our air form. Yeah. And we hook up a couple of big blowers and we inflate that form. Yeah, it's like a ginormous half balloon. Yes. Yeah. And so then all the work is done inside. That balloon is actually the finished roof. Yeah. So we inflate that finished roof. 
We say we tell people we're from Idaho, so we do things backwards. <laughs> we we build the roof first, then we insulate, and then we build the structure. You're like what? <laughs> so we build it, we inflate the roof, we go inside, we spray polyurethane foam on the inside surface. And so then that gives it a little bit hardened. A little of bit a of rigidity. Yeah. Okay. And then to the inside of that, we hang a light network of rebar, reinforcing steel, and we spray that in with concrete. Yeah, it's so, so cool. So that's all what we call our forming process. None of that is structural. Then at that point, we start hanging big, heavy structural rebars and then spraying layers of those in with concrete until we get it to the engineered thickness. So at the end, it really is a big concrete structure, but to be built, it kind of starts as a balloon and then yes. you just fill in the inside. But it's, it's fascinating. But it is a hollow structure. It's, yeah. yeah it's, uh, so you can store, you can store 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 tons of grain or cement or whatever on the inside of this, this silo, depending on what size we make it. Now, I also saw when you talk about the tornado or hurricane shelters that you guys had done one that they're using like as a gym. It looks like gymnasium, um, but it's a dome and it's a protective structure. It's it's their, um, what do they call it? Safe room? Not a safe, safe room. But safe room, yeah. Yeah, safe yeah. Room. yeah what, what kind of prompted that market is uh, the FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, they have a program where if a school or a city or some other government or quasi-governmental entity wants to build a structure that will withstand hurricanes and tornadoes, FEMA will grant them between 70 and 80% of the cost of the structure. Wow. Not all the finishes on the inside, but at least the structure, FEMA will just basically pay for. So we have a lot of schools in... Hurricane and Tornado Alley that say, hey, we need a new gymnasium. Yeah. Let's build a FEMA storm shelter, a FEMA safe room, and it'll double as our gymnasium, or it'll double as our cafeteria, or it'll double as our library. So that's kind of what's been Because it's a big open space. So I guess where I'm trying to go with that is that when you think of inside of a grain silo, I mean, that doesn't seem very glamorous, but it can be (laughs) as beautiful as a very finished gym or like you said, a cafeteria, whatever. Yeah, they make them very beautiful on the inside. Yeah. So do you do, do you do any of that inside work or is yours mainly just get that structure up and then let somebody else go for it? We we focus on building the dome. Mm -hmm. And so we're usually a subcontractor to a general contractor that has the contract to build the entire school or or whatever, you know, and then we're usually just building the dome. And in, in the case of those safe rooms, uh, most of the architects that have designed those, they've designed a, a block wall, a block or brick wall, a vertical wall that's round, and we just put the dome roof on it. Yeah, so that's basically your foundation, although it might yeah. be eight feet tall. Or it might be 14 or 20 foot oh, tall. Oh, so, got it, yeah. yeah. Depends on how tall the bleachers they want inside there. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, it's quite beautiful. So you should check it out on the website. And it's Dome Tech. What is your website? www.domtec.com. Yeah. Okay. We say no Dome e. Tech, spelled like Dom Tech. <laughs> All right. Well, it totally makes sense. You'll know it when you see it because there's a bunch of dome buildings on there. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. So talk to me a little bit about why domes. Like, why. Why did you get into the dome business? 
Well, uh, I actually didn't start out thinking I was going to be in the dome business. Uh, my father was a was an English professor up at Ricks College. And as a young boy, I thought I was going to go to college and get a doctor's degree and be really smart. And I loved science and I loved, you know, I, I loved chemistry in high school. But uh, during the summers, I was working out in Hamer for an uncle of mine. And uh, I, I worked for him every summer through high school. And and when I got home, I got married to my high school sweetheart. And, and what did you do out in Hamer farming? We moved out to Hamer and we farmed, yes. Okay. So I was moving sprinkler pipe and I was driving hay swathers and balers and stackers and, and all that you sort of thing. You were the farmer. Yeah. I was a farmer. And so when I got home from my mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I, uh, I bought a half section of ground out there and bought a couple of center pivot sprinklers. Wow. And became a farmer, but I had to work for... For my uncle still, because that's about as much as much credit as I could get. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it probably wasn't bringing in, making all the bills no, for you at that wasn't. point. Yeah. No. So, one day I was out uh, hauling manure one we one winter day, and I was just making trips from the corrals out to the field and spreading the manure, and I got to thinking, you know, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> That wasn't the to make a glamorous than, job you thought it was going to be. Spreading manure, hauling manure. And I just started daydreaming. I, I just imagined myself flying around the world on airplanes and landing and making deals and being in business. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool, but nah, that couldn't happen to somebody like me. But uh, so about that time also, there were some gentlemen in Idaho Falls that had started selling domes for potato storage. And I was quite intrigued by that idea, and I just kind of followed that around a little bit. And uh, pretty soon, after a few a few hard years of farming and losing money on frozen wheat and bad potato prices, I, I said, you know, I gotta I gotta get out of the sinking ship. So I sold the farm and uh, looked for another job and took some sales jobs, and I ended up actually going to work for these guys that were building domes. Oh wow! As a salesman. Because I was selling potato storages to up and down the valley. It made sense to you. That was what yeah. you were, yeah, that's your crowd. That was that was people I knew, mm -hmm. yeah. And so then uh, that wasn't, we weren't selling a lot of potato storage, but we started selling some fertilizer storage. And that took us a little more regional and a little more national. And uh, then we branched off into the cement industry. And that's actually been our bread and butter industry is, when I say cement, I'm talking about the powder you put in concrete to make it hard. Uh -huh. And the people that manufacture cement, they love us. They love our domes. It keeps There's, it dry and they yeah. can store it in there. Oh, right. Okay. So anyway, uh, that's kind of how we got started. I, I went to work for that company. They decided to up and move to California because they had a big job in California. And they thought, well, if we move to California, we can, we can work without having to travel all over the U.S. We'll have all the business we can sure. handle. But I didn't want to move to California, so I stayed behind, and with one of the guy's brothers, we started another dome company. And then a few years... Because you felt like there was enough here in this area that you guys could serve. Well, not just in this area, but I just didn't mind traveling. Got it. And I didn't want to live in California. Yeah. Yes. Touche, I guess. <laughs> California is a great place to live, but I just... The politics and the and the people and just the crowds, you know, I, I like this Idaho life. Yeah, so. yeah. 
So anyway, we stayed here and uh, we kind of pooled our resources and we started another dome company. And within a year or two, I could see that we had quite differing philosophies. And so we started negotiating a split up. And 25 years ago, we split up and I started Dome Tech International. And that partner still is in the dome business as well? Yes. So then you became competitors. Yes. Uh Mm -hmm. Well, originally it was supposed to be a friendly split up and we were going to work together. But uh, as somebody once told me, there's no such thing as a friendly divorce. Yeah, uh, right. Unfortunately, it kind of turned a little bit uh, competitive, Mm -hmm. very competitive. Mm -hmm. Uh, That former partner, he's pretty much retired now, but his children still run that other company. And Mm -hmm. And we still compete against each other. And Well, there uh, must be enough business for both of you. There is enough business for both of us. <laughs> All right. And even another one of his brothers split off from him later. Oh, so wow. there's, there's three dome builders in the in this Snake River Valley, and we we dub it the uh, dome capital of the world. So. <laughs> is that true, though? Is like yeah. the, the majority of people who build domes, are they from this area? Yes. I mean, we have, That's uh, interesting. We have a competitor. The, the ones that uh, I was working for originally that moved to California, yeah. they later moved to Texas. And they're not as much of a big player as they used to be, but they're still around. Yeah. And we had a, a French competitor for a while, and he's declared bankruptcy. We have a Spanish competitor. We have a Polish competitor that mostly works in Poland and Eastern Europe. So we don't see him very often, but... Uh, but who knew East Idaho was going to be the Mecca? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. We'll see what you guys started. That's great. All right. So I'm curious because I would like to know what is the most complicated structure that you've ever built? I would say in the bulk storage industry, one of the most complicated ones we ever built was a dome to store cement clinker down in Panama when they were getting ready to expand the Panama Canal, build the new canal. Yeah. You've heard about that. Yeah. One of the local cement companies, they said, we need to double our or triple our capacity of cement production. So they hired us to go down there and build a dome for for storing clinker, which is an intermediate product in the manufacture of cement. And that dome, it had two underground tunnels. They weren't actually underground. They were above ground. So our dome was actually up on a berm and uh, sat on top of those two tunnels. And then on top of this dome, they wanted to put a big, huge head house and land two or three different conveyors on it and all these different things. So there was just a huge complex of of point loads and openings and uh, that this dome had to support. Wow. At the end of the day, we were supporting something like uh, 200 tons of weight on top of the dome. And that's the first time you'd ever done something like that? That with that much weight on top yeah. and that much yeah. complexity. Um, on the other side, uh, the very first uh, FEMA storm shelter we built was that in Florida. And that was that was a learning experience because we hadn't built one on top of a 20-foot wall before. Yeah, right. And again, um, it had a lot of openings for ventilation and for this and that and the other. So... We can have as many openings as you need in a dome. We just need to know need a need to know ahead of time so we can yeah kind of plan engineer for, it. for them and plan for them. Not put yeah, a big but, old thing of rebar through it. <clears throat> right, <laughs> that's exactly. kind of important. Uh-huh. Uh, but other than that, uh, it hasn't been too too much complexity. They're actually quite simple structures. Actually, how long does it usually take? I mean, obviously, it depends on the size. But what? How long is a project usually? Yeah, a small dome might take six to 
eight weeks and a large dome will take anywhere from four to six months. So you are, have gone all over the world, like you're building them, like you said, in Panama and uh, New Zealand and all other, uh, all sorts of places. Do you take a construction team to the site or do you hire people local to the area? We've worked out a pretty good system. We take uh, a few specialist te technicians, typically, depending on the size of the job, could be anywhere from four to, to 10 people that we take from here. And they're the guys that know all the techniques and science and art of building a dome. And then we link up with a contractor in that foreign country. It's either a contractor that we find or it's a contractor that our client already knows and, and designates, hey, you're going to work with these guys. And we work out between us and them what we're going to supply, what we're going to bring from the States and what they're going to supply. They're always going to supply all the rebar, all the concrete and most of the labor. Okay. So, good. so okay. we take, you know, between six or eight or 10 people, they might furnish 12 or 20 people to work under the direction of our guys. Uh -huh. And uh, we'll work two shifts. We always, we, we try to get in a rhythm, especially on these big storage domes that we're working two 10 hour shifts a day. So we split our guys up between the night shift and the day shift and and then we just direct all the work. So if I'm assigned to go on one of those jobs, I may be gone for four months doing this. Correct. Wow. That's a lot of commitment from your team, but do they like it? <laughs> That's one of our biggest challenges actually yeah. is finding, training and keeping people that can, that are that are able to and willing to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's not a very good job for a for a guy with a big family that he's trying to raise and spend a lot of good and quality time with. And want to be with, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we've had a lot of luck with uh, younger people just coming out of college, newlyweds that uh, want to see the, the world yeah, for right. two or three years until they have kids that are in school. Yeah. Uh, we've had quite a bit of luck with, a, uh, with some uh, people out of Mexico that have worked for us. We've got some people working for us that have worked for me for, well, they've been working for me since I, before I started Dome Tech International. Some of them have had like 20, 25, 30 years with me. Wow, and, that's uh, great. How long have you been in business? Dome Tech International is a 25-year-old company. Mm. I've been in the dome business for about 38 years. Mm. Wow, this is what you know. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't hear you talk about um, going to college and learning how to do all of this kind of stuff. So did you, tell me about your educational background. Did you have any educational background related to this? Do you feel like you needed it? Uh, in hindsight, I would recommend that you did, but, uh, uh, you know, a university isn't the only place you can get an education. Uh, do I believe education is important? Yes, I believe it's extremely important. But as I say, you, there's other ways to get educated than to go to school. I, I kind of messed up. My father, as I mentioned, was an English teacher up at Rick's College. Right. And I had free tuition right. until I graduated or turn 30, whichever came first. But where I decided I wanted to be a farmer and I went out to Hamer and, and got married and we started having kids, when I finally decided, ah, oh, I don't know what this farming is gonna do for me. I had so many kids and I had a wife that I said, I you can't afford, I can't afford to stop and go to school now. So I just had to make do. So uh, what I tell people is if you're a hard worker and if you really pay attention and if you're really observant and if you're 
if you just want to learn, if you're just naturally curious and you'll try to learn what you have to learn, you can learn it. Uh, I don't have a college education. I, I got uh, a few college credits. I went to about a semester, or about a half a semester before my mission and about a half a semester after. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I took some night classes after that. Some, but uh, but know, that I, really wasn't leading you anywhere that you were like, eh, I want, totally want to do this. You, my you education were... is the school of hard knocks. Well, and... I think a lot of us are trained in that school and it's not <laughs> so bad. It is hard. And you do get, you know, like you pay for that over and over and over, um, just like you pay for tuition. It's a it's a tough school to go to. Yes. And that's what we say sometimes. You, you make mistakes and you say, well, that's part of my tuition. <laughs> yeah. Amen. That's so true. Well, I understand that your father was a professor, but having like moving into this, um, deciding to break off from the um, other company that you were with, with your partner, like, and I don't mean to say this insensitively at all, but what made you think you could run a business? Like, why did you have the belief that you guys could do this? Well, while I was working for that other company, I was probably responsible for at least 80 to 90% of their sales. So I knew I could sell domes. And um, I had had some friends, some mentors that were businessmen that I had interviewed and talked to and got pointers from. And <clears throat> I just, it takes a lot of guts, but. Uh, and maybe a little naivety. A lot of naivety. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that's the truth. If I look back now and say, I did what? I know, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> I, I can't believe I did that. But you just jump out in the water and you learn how to swim. And and uh, I, I was lucky. And I I really believe in divine intervention. I, I think I was really blessed. Yeah. And, and then you just find good people and surround yourself with people that are smarter than you are in certain areas that you're lacking. And and it works. Yeah, good for you. I mean, I do think that many of us are lucky and it's truly because we don't know any better because if we knew better, we wouldn't have done it. And so it 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 actually pays to not have all of the information all the time. You want to do your homework, but if you knew everything, it it would it would hold you back and then you wouldn't be able to have these great opportunities and experiences. Yeah, kind of the jumping off point. I'd gone over to Germany to close a deal for the other dome company. Okay. And we had made a, an agreement with a local German contractor that they were going to be the main contractor and we would be their subcontractor. And we got into the negotiations and the client says, well, this German contractor, they've only been in business for a short time. We would feel much better if you, dome company, were the general contractor. And I said, well, uh, that isn't the arrangement I have with my friends here in Germany. And and the German friends, they pulled me off the side. They, they said, hey, let's go talk for a minute. And he says, the only way we're going to get this job, if you'll, be, if you'll sign the as contract the as a general contractor. I said, I don't know anything about being a general contractor in Germany. <laughs> in another country. <laughs> and they said, uh, well, look, we'll still perform that function. You just, on, in name only, be the general contractor. Sign on the line. And we'll back you We'll up. do it. We got your back. <laughs> that was brave. So I said, let me clear that with my partner back home. I called him up. We were on different time zones. I had to wait until he woke up. I said, hey, good news. We got the job. 
And he says, great. I says, bad news is we have to be the general contractor. He says, no way. I says, well, that's the only way we get the job. He says, well, then get on the plane and come home. I says, uh, I don't want to lose this job. And so we had been negotiating, as I say, to split up. I said, well, how about if I do this as my new company, as Dome Tech International, and I'll hire you as my subcontractor to come over here and do the dome building part of it. You can do just the same scope that you were going to do if you were working for the German company. And he says, that's fine. If you think they'll sign with you, you're a new company too. So that night I changed the names on the contracts. I went oh, back in word. the next morning. I handed it to the German client. They started reading everything and they saw that we made all the other changes we had discussed the day before. And all of a sudden one of them raised his hand. He says, Mr. Hunter, he says, uh, it says here, Dome Tech International. I thought we were doing business with the other dome company. And I says, well, you wanted the dome company to be the general contractor. He says, yes. I says, well, this is the entity that we use to do general contracting in other countries. <laughs> and they talked in German a little bit and they said, okay. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> good to me. They signed the contract and we we're off. <laughs> I love that story and how it turn out. We didn't really make any money. We might've made about $10,000 when uh -huh. it was all said and done. Uh-huh. But uh, we, we had That was pay. your jumping off point. That was our jumping off point. And we had, I mean, we covered all our costs. We, we paid the other dome company to be our subcontractor. We bought the equipment out of, out of Utah to be install on it. And we, we bought some, some uh, other equipment in Germany. And uh, as I say, this German company that we were working with, they, they backed us up as they said they would. That's great. And it, that was a leap of faith. That was a leap of faith. I'll tell you what. That night when I went to bed in Germany, I said, what in the world you have you done? You were saying some prayers. You just signed <laughs> to be responsible for a $5 million project and you don't have a clue about what you're doing. In a foreign country. In a foreign country. But it all worked out. That was great. Very good for you. <laughs> That's so good. So it, it makes me think, like, how do you do business in these foreign countries when, do you speak a foreign language? I do speak Spanish fluently. Um, that's uh, probably come in handy. Yeah, that has come in very handy. Yeah. And we've had to sign some contracts actually in Spanish. So uh, you I've can read a, it and do the whole I've thing. I've learned a whole different vocabulary than when I was a missionary. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, it's it's a lot. It's It's got some, you know, it's like anything. If you know how to do it, it's not that hard. It's, uh, it would be a little bit daunting if it was my first time. It yeah. was daunting. Yeah, learning but, how to do that. But now that I've been through it several times, it's, it's not all that difficult. Um, you have to learn what the system is and what the government requirements are and the taxing system and whatnot in, in those different countries. And uh, then you just adapt. Mm -hmm. uh, we always try to have our contracts in English. As I say, there's been a few that have been in Spanish. We always try to collect our money in U.S. dollars, but there's been a few contracts that we've had mixed currencies. We've had the German contract. We had some of it was in, that was before the Euro, that was with in German Deutschmarks, and some of it was in U.S. dollars. Wow. And so we were- Things that I wouldn't even think about. Two different currencies. Wow. We just did one in Colombia last year that we had Colombian pesos and U.S. dollars, two different, two different parts of the contract. But, so it's just a... There's some complexities here rather than just building the dome. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And again, I got great people. I've got a good accountant working for us uh, inside the company and then our CPA. And then when we go to these other countries, we always look for some accounting and tax and legal help. 
in that country too. And you probably learned that just by trial and error. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I can't imagine thinking about that now. Like if, you know, all the things that you had to consider when you were going into this and you didn't, you just did <laughs> I didn't. It. <laughs> I just did it. And I, I spent a lot of nights till, till midnight, one, two o'clock in the morning trying to work through all the issues. And, and you didn't even have Google to answer your questions then. No, back then, you didn't, no. <laughs> you're just figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a great example it of was, uh, just doing it. It was uh, emails and fax machines and not even email at first. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. So what do you think, looking back and thinking about all of that, what do you think have been some of your biggest challenges in building your business? And how have you overcome those have you, as you have faced those? Well, we just mentioned some, just learning how to do business in foreign countries and learning how to do business in different parts of the United States. So that was one of the challenges. And as I mentioned, we just uh, we employed accounting and legal help. You got good people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, another big challenge, as I mentioned, was the uh, finding and training and keeping good people, uh, teaching them how to build domes and then, and then maintaining them. And that's just a question of uh, finding people that, that have that interest and have a good work ethic and, and then just motivating them and compensating them well. Uh, we have this family out of Mexico, as I mentioned, uh, their leader of that group. He's, he's been with me a long time. And, uh, that guy, he makes, uh, five figures, sometimes six figures in a year, uh, just depending on how many how domes he builds. Yeah, right. And he usually has, uh, two or three months off that, uh, that he can, uh, you know, spend time with his family yeah. and do whatever he needs to. He has a farm yeah. down in Mexico, but he loves to do it and we pay him well. And uh, he's he's willing to go anywhere for us. He's built a couple of domes for us in Nigeria. Uh, that's not a very fun place to go. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But those are some of the biggest challenges, I think. What uh, about logistics? You said that you lo source locally, like the rebar and the concrete and stuff, but the dome material, I imagine you have to ship from here. The air form we ship. And that can be a ginormous thing. Like, how do yes. you get that to a foreign country? Each one of our foreign jobs will require us to send usually two big shipping containers, either 40-foot sh shipping containers or a 40 and a 20. Or And is that manufactured here? The, the fabric? Uh -huh. The air form is manufactured. The supplier we're using right now is in Canada. Okay. So we buy it out of Canada. And they put it in a container and ship it to us. And then we put a few more things in the container and ship it onto the job site. Um, but that's just logistics. We, again, I've got, I've got a gal in our office who he, she's a whiz at working with the freight forwarding companies to arrange the routes and the freight, picking it up. And, and I just have to tell her, hey, I need, we're going to build this dome in this city on this continent, <laughs> and this we need date. to start this date. <laughs> so start working on the shipping arrangements. And we got another guy in the office that he's a whiz that uh, he knows how to how to identify all the different things we need to pack. And he gets everything bought and packed and packaged. And so it's not going to be jumping around, so flying around inside the container. So you don't get to New container. Zealand and not have something right. that you need. Yeah. And we stick it all in the containers, lock the doors stick it on a truck and they take it to the coast and stick it on a boat and there you go. our crew flies to the city where we're going to build and there it is. Yeah, it's amazing. The world is 
is big and yet really small. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's and cool. The shipping industry is very efficient and, and good. Yeah. It's like they've been doing this for a while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So clearly you've been doing this for many years. You've learned a lot in your years. What advice would you have for anybody who's considering self-employment for themselves, especially now looking back? Um, sure. I'm sure you're glad that you did it now, but <laughs> what would you say to anybody that's looking to do it in their lives? Well, you, first thing, you got to believe in yourself. And you've got to have a good product or service that uh, is also something that's needed that solves people's problems. Um, you're in, in business, you're in the business to help people solve their problems. And it can't be something you're just in love with. Oh, I'm going to do this and everybody will love me. No, it's got to be a service that you can do to help other people solve their problems. And if you find that and you believe in yourself and you, you take the time and you do the work, do the hard work to make yourself an expert at that, then it's just a matter of sticking with it and working it out. Um, some pieces of advice I got when I was starting out, and if I would tell anybody else, uh, one of the first pieces of advice, I, I got to thinking, oh, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, so I need to have two or three or four partners. Uh, I need smarter people that are my partners. And uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got was, you don't want any more partners than you have to absolutely have. Hire as much done as you can, but when it comes to running a business, you need to be quick and nimble, and you need to be able to make decisions on the fly and not go back to a committee of partners that are going to slow you down and right. slow the process. Right. So that's one piece of advice is have as few partners as possible. Another thing is uh, finance. Um, one of my friends who had started and run and lost his business a couple of times in life. And so he had been through the, the process and learned. He told me on a, on, we used to travel quite a bit together. He sold equipment out of Utah and we used that equipment in our domes. So we took a lot of trips together and on one long plane ride, he says, Mike, he says, if you're really gonna jump out and start your own business, here's what I'd recommend. You carefully study out everything you can possibly think of that you're gonna have to spend money on. Insurance, rent, uh, employees, vehicles, everything you can possibly think of add up all those costs and then double that number. <laughs> and that's about, how much, never what you think that's it's about how much money you should have available to you before you get started. Interesting. Maybe you don't have to have all that money in your pocket, but you should know where you're going to be able to get it. Uh, got it. Yeah, because that, that can be really a tough position to be in when you can't finance your dream. Right. Yeah. Okay, good advice. Another big piece of advice that I had to learn from my, I, I took on a partner for a while. And uh, I bought him out in 2011, but uh, uh, he taught me a good lesson. And that was this importance of delayed gratification. So many people think, oh, I'm going to have my own business. Wow, I'm going to be, be in the money. Millionaire. I'm going to be just living <laughs> the dream. And I'm going to be building cabins and buying boats and buying this and buying that. And I'm going to have a fleet of snowmobiles. And, and uh, I remember the first year that we had a really good year. And I was thinking, wow, we've made a lot of money. 
I can't wait. I can to go ex- buy stuff. I can go start <laughs> buying some stuff. And my partner says, Hunter, come with me. We walked out in the shop and he says, you see this brand new $90,000 concrete pump? I said, yeah. He says, that's your snowmobile. <laughs> and I thought, oh, oh I get it. <laughs> and so oh, the money has to go back in the business. So huh? we, uh, we, uh, we disciplined ourselves and, and what I learned from him, and I, I re- highly recommend this. You know, a lot of people say, oh, there's nothing wrong with leverage. There's nothing wrong with debt. And yeah, sometimes you have to get into debt, but avoid that as much as possible. And live off of your own money as much as possible. We have run Domtech International for 25 years now. And we've only used our line of credit maybe five or six times. Yeah, wow. And we only use it for like uh, four or five months at a time. And then if we pay it off and we like to have it, we want to know it's there. Yeah. It's available yeah, to us. Yeah, of course. But You're not living we off don't of just, it. We just don't live in our line of credit. We don't... Uh, we. I still have never owned a snowmobile or a four-wheeler. <laughs> it's still the concrete pump, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but I have everything I need. Well, I've just decided for me, a snowmobile, I'd go rent one of those. Yeah, I only exactly. go snowmobiling two or three times a year. <laughs> and that costs a lot less. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a very smart way to look at it. Plus, you don't have to work on them because they're always breaking down. That's right. And I get a new one every year. <laughs> I See, it's great thinking. I love it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, especially the delayed gratification because so many people, especially, it, it's sexy to be an entrepreneur. And so um, thinking about starting your own business, people want to be instantly successful and Um, you know, like I talk about our business, we're third generation and, you know, maybe we're finally getting to a point that we could say we're successful and that's after 81 years. So you just, it doesn't happen overnight. (laughs) That's right. Uh, so many businesses fail within the first two or three years, uh, because they don't have that mentality of delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. But if you'll just hold off, um, to quote Dave Ramsey, he says, if you will live like nobody else, then eventually you can live like nobody else. So, <laughs> That's a good uh, quote. so you just gotta, you gotta delay and eventually you'll get to the point where, you know, you don't have to worry about stuff yeah. because you've got a cushion. Yeah. It's great advice. I love that so much. You know, I imagine, and I've heard it a little bit in what you've talked about, um, the feelings of having imposter syndrome or self-doubt and being like, somebody's going to figure out that I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, have you have you lived through that? Did I say that? <laughs> I, <laughs> I probably yes. just read your mind. I mean, that's... I have felt that. <laughs> yes. I remember when I first started Don't Take International and we took a trip and we landed and I walked up to the counter to rent a car and he said, what company do you work for? And I said, Don't Take International. I'm thinking... That's a brand new company. <laughs> Am I really a real company? Yeah, right. I'm just going to say but, this uh, out loud and nobody will know that it's not real or whatever. <laughs> but in time, you, you finally realize, you st- yeah, start to get legit. comfort in your own skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you start to have respect. Yes. I think, now I have heard, and I actually really respect this point of view, that imposter syndrome, fear, all those things are actually what you want because you're living on that edge that helps you to perform. Because when you get too comfortable with stuff, then you're not, you know, you're not pushing yourself. You're not doing the most that you can. And so a little bit of fear leaning into that imposter syndrome actually is a good place to be. So that is absolutely true. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, in one of my trips overseas to a trade conference, 
that I, I was asked to speak at, uh, the uh, the organizer had a had a dinner for all the speakers, and I was sitting here next to the CEO and chairman of the board of one of the largest manufacturers of equipment for the cement industry. And we were sitting there talking and visiting and about two chairs over from him, he says, yeah, this is the president of our company. I looked over and here's this guy. He must, he couldn't have been more than 38, 40 years old. Wow. And I thought this global company that is selling <laughs> billions of dollars worth of equipment for cement plants and their CEO, I says, what's the deal? Why do you have such a young CEO? I, I would think you'd want to do that. Yeah, right. He says, oh, he says, uh, you need a young guy, a young guy that that is not risk averse, somebody who's willing to take a chance, somebody who's got big dreams, big plans, and lots of energy to try and back it up to prove that he can do it. Yeah. That's what you got to have for a CEO. He says, so we keep until they're about 45, 50, and then we get a new one. Because <laughs> we need somebody who is yeah. ready to take on that challenge. I thought that's an interesting philosophy. Actually, it's not a bad philosophy, is it? I think that that's, um, you know, you look at some of these companies and that's exactly who they hire when they're in that real growth period, especially. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, um, talking about that, I think about, um, you know, being in business as long as you have and seeing the things that you have seen, how do you stay motivated? You've been in this for a lot of years. How do you stay engaged and, and actually in the business? It's, <clears throat> it's not as easy now as it used to be. <clears throat> for, for so many years, it was just easy to get up in the morning. It was just so exciting because I thought, what new adventure am I going to be doing today? Am I, I going to be talking to somebody today yeah. from France or from, from Chile or from Korea, you know, who am I going to talk to today? What yeah. interesting thing am I going to learn? What new industry am I going to explore? And so that was always very, very exciting to me. And it is very exciting to me. I love people. I love to talk to people. I love to, to learn about new cultures. And it was hard at first, uh, but I developed some wonderful friendships. And that's part of what motivates me is I've got a guy that I call my Iraqi brother. And we are just, we are just tight. We are just super good friends. We talk to each other several times a week and he lives in, well, he has a house in Cairo, but he has his, he's married to a Danish woman and they have a house in Denmark and, and they had, they had a flat in uh, Dubai for a while and I've stayed there with him for a while. And, but uh, I've met some great people in different parts of the world and it's just fun to connect with them and do things with them. And that's probably what still motivates me the most now. Uh, but as I'm, I can tell that I'm getting tired, and so we've got some of our guys in-house that we're bringing up and giving more responsibility to, and we have a pr new president in our company. Benjamin Davis is our president, and-, and I uh, see what you're doing. You're following that other, that other company's model. Yes, he's got a lot of energy <laughs> and a lot of great ideas. He's a, he's a generation younger, so he's, he's, uh, he's, he's more with it with the new stuff. Yeah. And- I'm kind of falling behind. I'm I'm the old dog. So. Are you okay with that? How are you feeling about all that? I'm fine with that. You're okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of us become control freaks in our business and think that no one can do it the way that we have done it. And there's it it won't be I done do exactly that. the same way. Yeah, it won't be. But it might be better. You <laughs> just might never be better. know. It might be better. Mm -hmm. And it might not be as good in some areas, but in some ways it will be better. And uh, all in all, as long as we're going forward and upwards, so that's all that counts. Yeah. So you kind of projected this when you were on the farm in Hamer, mucking that manure. <laughs> I mean, really, you did. <clears throat> and here you're living that 
thing that you kind of yes. dreamt about. Be careful what you think about. Because <laughs> it'll take you there. Your subconscious and, and divine intervention might just take you there. It might become, your dream can become a reality if you're willing. Again, you, you can't just sit back and wait for it to happen. You have to go out and make it happen. You have to work for it. And all the time that I was growing and thinking, okay, I'm going to start a own business. I would think about that vision I had. Uh, this might be a step towards that vision. And so you just have to keep putting the pieces together as they come to you and uh, just being alert and working hard. Yeah, I love that. I think that um, the show that I have formatted this show after is called How I Built This by Guy Raz. And at the end of the show, he asks all of his guest, guests about their success, whether they think it was luck or whether it was skill. And, 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 you know, it's interesting to hear their responses because it's all over the place. But every response has something to do with the fact that I was in a place where an opportunity came and I took it. And, you know, you have to be prepared and you have to be, whether that's in a skill or a mindset or whatever the case may be, because opportunities probably are coming at us every single minute of every single day. But we don't recognize them unless we're ready. Case in point, that German job. I mean, I was sitting over there. I had a job ready to be signed. And the only way I could do it is if I would step up to the plate. I had prepared myself. I had already kind of put together a, a quasi business plan. And I knew where some resources were that I could get. And so I, I says, okay, what have I got to... What have I got to lose? At that point, I had nothing to lose. So I signed the contract. I was scared to death. Got on the plane, came home, went and found a banker and got a bank line set up. You just set up. Yeah. Called a guy that later became my partner and invited him to come to work for me. I invited him to be a partner. And he he says, hey, he says, uh, I'll, I'll go to work for you as your construction manager. And if you're still in business after a year, <laughs> then I'd like to take you up on the offer. I said, okay, well, I'm going to pay myself an extra bonus for taking all this front end risk. But, uh, and I did, Yeah. but, uh, I just found the right people. Another piece of advice I got from a, from a, a friend and, and mentor early on is, uh, you can always afford to hire the right people. And, you know, people say, oh, I can't afford him. He's way too expensive. Well, if he or she is going to make you money, you can afford to hire them. Yeah, right. It's so, so true. I think we we get terrified in the front end and can't understand yeah. it's going to pay off in dividends. Right. And you can make that be part of the arrangement of bringing them on. Right. Like, you got to make this money, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what's the future for Dome Tech besides Ben? Well, uh, I am working on... Um, trying to figure out a retirement plan and exit strategy. All right. Uh, I, I, I don't want to say too much, but uh, <laughs> I am I am working on a on a uh, a buyout with some of uh, the employees and and uh, the the hope is that uh, they'll get me bought out within the next year or two and I'll continue to work for another two, maybe three years and slowly kind of phase out and they'll phase in and and then we'll find you out here bird watching and doing other things i'll spend a lot more time bird watching maybe a little more time on the golf course i love it a little more time on the fishing stream yeah i've got a wife and seven children and 29 grandchildren so we've got plenty of things to do good for you i think i love it i love to see that your life has brought you around to this and <laughs> that you're able to have the ability to 
to do that. All right. Is there anything else you want to share with the listeners before I let you go? Not that I can think of, unless you can think of any more questions. I think we co- oh, I could question forever. But, I, I've you probably know. given you way more information than you were planning on. <laughs> no, I, I think it's... way too much. It's awesome. This is exactly why we have this show, so we can <laughs> learn all of this kind of stuff. So, Mike, thank you so much for being yeah. on the show today, for teaching us all about domes, for sure. Um, you are a great example of hard work and commitment and being brave and just putting yourself out <laughs> there. And um, you've shown how that combination results in success. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. As a reminder, guys, this show is sponsored by Oswald Service and Repair with locations in Idaho Falls and Rexburg. If you're looking for automotive repair provided with honesty and integrity, come and see us and let our family take care of your family. Now stay tuned for the Business Leadership Moment. It's now time for a Business Leadership Moment on East Idaho Entrepreneur's Podcast. Welcome to the Business Leadership Moment. This section is brought to you by RiseCon. RiseCon is an East Idaho business conference held every November. They also have a sister event called RiseX, which is held monthly. Come and join us. You can check it out at www.risecon.io or risex.io. Um, tomorrow, if you're listening to this show when it drops, this is Christmas Eve and tomorrow is Christmas. And so I thought it only appropriate for our business leadership moment to have something to do with the Christmas story. So whether you consider the Christmas story of Christ, gospel, history, myth, um, whatever, the traditional story of Christmas makes for a pretty compelling tale that is filled with leadership lessons. And so I want to focus on a few of the leadership lessons that I feel like the Christmas story gives to us. Um, As you know, um, Mary is approached by an angel, told she's going to have uh, the Son of God. Um, And one of the things I think we can learn from Mary especially is humility. Um, You know, when we're given an important assignment as leaders, we have the tendency to want to show off a little bit. Um, And even if we don't say it out loud, we kind of, you know, we're either proving it to ourselves or proving to someone else that we can do it and that we've earned this distinction um, based on our merits or our talent or our hard work. Um, And so, you know, you can feel a little bit like I deserve this more than somebody else because of what I've done. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that's just human nature. So when you think about how Mary took her assignment, when Mary received the news that she was to be the mother of Christ, um, she praised God and she didn't, um, you know, it's a, it was a different time. I get it, but she, there were definitely people out there trying to get attention and Mary did not, um, do that same thing. So I think one of the things that we can absolutely learn from her, is humility. When we have a task before us that's important, um, respond with Mary's humility. It it will reorient you. It helps you think so you can kind of believe, understand it's not about you. It's about the other people that you are playing a role in um, getting things done and and serving um, the greater good and the other people. So, Think about that this this year as you go forward, our willingness to give ourselves in humility without reservation or self-interest is what can really set us apart as leaders. Um, Another principle I think the Christmas story teaches us is absolutely giving. 
Uh, Giving gifts is among the first things that we think about when we talk about Christmas. And it is definitely the center of the Christmas story with the wise men bringing gifts to Jesus, um, the shepherds praising Jesus. You know, it it was about giving. Um, Ideally, Christmas reminds us of the joy of giving, but too often we approach it not from that spirit, but from a place of obligation. And so I think as leaders, we can counteract that by seeing the results of the things that we're able to give. And I think one of those that I really love is when someone under our mentorship thrives in a new role or learns a new skill that we've helped them or in some way benefits from our generosity of time or whatever that is that you're able to give them. Um, I think we do need to just step back and appreciate that we are in a position to give and understand uh, what a blessing that is to people in in their lives and to ours to see people thrive. Um, Because of our leadership, we're in position to do that. So giving is another one of the attributes of the Christmas story that I think tends itself right with with leadership. And the last one I want to talk about is sacrifice. So you think about the Christmas story and, you know, sacrifice is ultimately what it's all about. Um, Sacrificing helps the others, you know, and it's at the heart of the leadership that we do. At least it should be. And if you think about superficial leaders, they often get superficial results. But those who give deeply of themselves can really accomplish spectacular things. And so I really want I really want you to think about that and the the sacrifice that you do on the behalf of the people that you serve, whether that's in your business or if you're in a leadership position in a company or an organization. Um, we we have a great position to be able to give and sacrifice and appreciate the things um, that the, the position that we're in as leaders. So this Christmas, I really hope that you will think about humility, giving and sacrifice. Um, I think that for effective leadership, these three attributes need to be present. Um, and I appreciate the Christmas story being there to remind us ever so beautifully about those attributes. So you guys have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I hope just the very best for you in 2021. We all deserve a little break. And so hopefully it's going to turn out to be a really great year for all of us. Have a great one and we will see you back here soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to East Idaho Entrepreneurs Podcast. Proudly brought to you by Oswald Service and Repair. For all your car care needs in Eastern Idaho, let our family take care of yours. www.oswaldserviceinc.com.